0: Good morning. morning. (laughs) 10.45. Well, good to see you. I hope you had a good week. Summer's almost over. I'm pretty pumped about that. Back to school. I like school. School's good. Back to school. Back to regular life. Well, open your Bibles with me to John 8, uh, verse 31, and we'll read together. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, The Son remains forever. So the Son sets you free. You will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Amen. So last week, we walked through the passage where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I said, it's a really famous passage. It's one of the most famous things that Jesus says. People have heard it inside and outside the church. This week, we have one of the most famous things Jesus has ever said. The truth will set you free. We've heard it inside the church. People who have no exposure to religion have heard that said before. It's employed in various contexts in our culture. The truth will set you free. Who's heard that before? Everyone, right? Everyone. Super famous passage. Christian parents use it a lot. My daughter came running out of the bathroom recently with a bunch of lotion on top of her head. And I was like, Cadence, did you put lotion on your head in the bathroom? And she was like, no. And I was like, the truth will set you free. And get you spankings. Let's talk about how we got here. Jesus has been preaching in the temple He's no longer outside the city doing ministry. He's inside the city. He's preaching in the center of the city where where the temple is. And he is having bitter and very intense conflict with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and other people who oppose him. And they make uh, sort of level accusations against him when he makes marvelous claims about himself and he defends himself. And we go back and forth. They challenge all these various things about him. They continue to oppose him. We see that they're unwilling to see who he is. His light shines bright. The darkness in their heart is revealed. Jesus is in a very bitter and a very public conflict with the Jewish leaders. And in the middle of this conflict, hearing what the Pharisees have to say and hearing what Jesus has to say and watching the back and forth is this Jewish crowd. They're thinking, are the Pharisees right? Is Jesus right? They're watching the Pharisees say this to Jesus, and Jesus defends himself, and then Jesus says this about himself, and the Pharisees are shocked. They're watching this whole thing go on. They're considering in their hearts what it is that's being said, and we see there's this beautiful moment at the end of our passage last week where some of these Jews who are there listening to Jesus begin to believe in him. They're beginning to see, oh, maybe some of the things he's saying, even about himself are true. Our previous passage ends with this line. And as he was speaking, some began to believe in him. They had been won over by Jesus, by his words, by his actions, and probably most importantly, by his presence. They've heard the things that Jesus has to say, and they're beginning to acknowledge that he might be telling the truth. They're intellectually assenting to Jesus. They're agreeing with him in their minds. They've been won over, and then Jesus, seeing this infant group of believers, people who've just crossed over into the world of unbelief, he directs his attention to them. He stops talking with the Pharisees for a moment, stops arguing with the Pharisees because he knows that these are new believers, people who have intellectually agreed with Jesus. He begins to talk to them. He begins to speak to them. He tells them the truth will set them free. This passage is not a passage about pragmatic living. We often use it that way. Like, if you know the truth, your life will be better. Uh, If you know how a body works, you eat healthy, you exercise, and you'll be healthy. That's not really the truth that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about intellectual truth. At least not primarily. He's not talking about the truth that frees them from erroneous living... He's talking about the truth that frees them from the power of sin and the sting of death. Fast forward with me to John fourteen six, where Jesus is going to speak about truth again. Here's what he says. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth that Jesus is talking about, the truth that he says will free these people listening to him, is very bound up in who he is. It's bound up in his action, it's bound up in his words, and it's bound up in his person. It isn't truth that's about understanding primarily. It's a truth that is about allegiance. Do you see that distinction? Not about understanding, about allegiance. It's not just about disciplined study. It's about disciplined living. It's not a truth that finds its way into your mind and you assent to it, It's truth that finds its way into your heart and changes you. That is the truth that Jesus is talking about. And then crucially, he explains to them that this truth will set them free. He tells them about belief. He tells them about following him. He tells them about discipleship. This is a passage where Jesus talks to them about what happens after belief initially. He's talking to them about discipleship, and very crucially, he's telling them that disciples are free. Is that true? Is that true? Disciples are free. He uses two analogies to talk about this. Two really important, socially important analogies. Slavery and sonship. Slavery and sonship. Two really important issues today, and very important issues back then. First, let's talk about slavery. Slavery is a brutal reality. It has always been a brutal reality. It has always been an inhumane reality. It's evil today. It's evil in the American South. It's evil way back then. It's important for us to understand what slavery is really about. Now, just as some background, at the time that Jesus is speaking, probably one third of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. One out of every three were slaves. Slaves didn't have control over their own destiny. They could be freed, but they weren't always freed. What's important for us to understand is that slavery is an issue of identity. I'm going to give you an example. I was talking with a friend recently, maybe about a year ago. We were talking about slavery in the South, uh, sort of the shame of America. And he was saying, you know, not all plantations were really that bad. And I was like, I don't think you should say that. He was like, no, 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 listen... Um, some of the plantations had really good living quarters and some wages. They had access to doctors. They had good food. And I'm like, uh, oh, please stop. Please don't say that. Please don't say that. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Slavery is an identity issue. What happens is you move from who you are to whose you are. That's a problem. Slavery is an identity issue. And Jesus is going to employ it as he talks with these Jews. Secondly, sonship, also an identity issue. I grew up here in the South Bay. My dad was an audio-video guy. And I would roll around with him to various restaurants where he would put in TVs and speakers and stuff like that in like the you know, late, late and early 90s. And I would usually... we go before the restaurants opened, and I would sit at the bar. No one was there. I was like nine. And I'd get like a, like a Shirley Temple. You guys know what that is? Yeah. Pretty good, right? So I'd sit down. I'd drink one of those. Um, you know, I was eight or nine. I'd watch my dad lift these really large TVs onto racks so that people could watch them while they ate these huge TVs. Now, um, some of you probably don't know this, TVs used to be huge, right? Like, and not in the way, like, the screens were big, like, they for some reason were, like, super wide, and, like, had this huge back. I don't know about TVs, but they were just terrible looking, they were really heavy, and i watched my dad lift these TVs and put them in racks, and i think, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll figure something else out. I do not want to do that. Not that I don't respect that job, I just knew I, personally, did not want to do it. Now, here's the thing. Socially, I don't have to, right? I don't have to do what my dad did. You know, that didn't matter. Back then, when Jesus is speaking, that's not how it worked. If your dad was a fisherman, you were very, very likely to be a fisherman. If your dad was a stonemason, you were very, very likely to be a stonemason. If your dad was a criminal, people would assume that you had criminal tendencies. Families and family names and who your father is was so essential to how people viewed you. A premise is this, or the premise is this. You do what your father does. You were like your father. Sons and daughters are like their father. Different today, right? When I meet someone, I say, what's your name? And they say, you know, whatever. I usually listen to that. I try and remember. i oh, sorry. But uh, the, what is the second question I ask them? Everyone knows. Everyone knows the second question. You guys are very socially conditioned. Good. So uh, you ask them, what do you do, right? Normal question. What if I was like, hey, what's your name? Well, my name's James. What is your father like? They'd be like, what? Is he a good man? Do you think he's a good man? Is he a good man? What does he do? They'd be like, please please leave me alone. <laughs> right? Please leave me alone. It doesn't matter today, right? Back then it mattered. People don't care what my grandfather's political views were. It mattered then. Who your dad was mattered. What house you were a part of mattered. Again, it's not an issue of who you are. It's an issue of whose you are. You see that? So Jesus employs these two really important concepts when he talks to the Jews about the issue of discipleship. Powerful analogies that would have been profound to them. And I think Jesus teaches us three things about freedom in this passage. The first is this. We are freed from the power of sin. The second is we are freed to fruitful sonship. The third is we are freed by the true Son. We are freed from the power of sin to fruitful sonship by the true Son. Pay attention to those prepositions, from, to, and by. You guys remember prepositions? There will be a quiz afterwards about that. So first, we are freed from the power of sin. Read with me in 833. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus says to this Jewish crowd, I'll set you free. And they're like, from what? We're already free. You can't free an already free person. We have what you think we need. We are free people. We've never been enslaved to anyone at all. <laughs> anyone who knows the story of the Jews and the Israelites is like, oh, I don't, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound right to me. The most foundational story for the Jewish people who are a remnant of the Israelites Is the one we read in Exodus. They were born into slavery. The nation itself was born in slavery for hundreds of years, enslaved by the Egyptians. They're the nation that God remembered, that God powerfully delivered out of slavery into freedom. Their origin story is about slavery, it's about slavery. We see it all over the Old Testament. Look with me in Micah 6.3. Listen to how God addresses his people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God is reminding them, you were slaves and I freed you. You were slaves and I freed you. In Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching to the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land. It's the second generation after they're done wandering in the desert. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses is sort of doing his last sermon for them. He's preaching to them one last time. Listen to what he says. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders and by war. By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord God that the Lord is God there is no other beside him Moses is reminding them you know who your God is because of what he did for you when you were enslaved this is just two examples the idea of slavery the remindedness, them being reminded that they were slaves happens all over the place in the Old Testament. Like 200 more times, if you read through. They're reminded, you were once slaves, God set you free. Remember slavery in Egypt, over and over and, over and over and over again. Not just that, though. Not just that. Later, they're sent out into exile, and the Babylonians rule them. Then the Persians rule them. Then the Macedonians rule them. Then the Seleucid kingdom rules them. Then the Ptolemaic kingdom rules them. And now, as Jesus is speaking, they're under the boot of the Roman Empire, to whom they pay taxes, whose laws they obey, who elects for them leaders, who sends leaders to their land to rule them. The Roman Empire went and desecrated the temple already, it would destroy it soon. They were under the power of a different nation. They still weren't free. So Jesus says to them, I'll free you. And they say to Jesus, We've never been slaves. We're not slaves now. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus is like, what? What are you talking about? It's so foundational to your story, to your history. It's so ingrained in who you are. And by the way, right now, you're not even free. You're not even free. And they say, we're sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. This is the basis for their claim that they're free. We're sons of Abraham. Were sons of Abraham. It's an important theme in the Old Testament. We remember Abraham. We remember that he was obedient, that he was faithful, that God called him. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites and later the Jews will be referred to as the sons of Abraham. Look with me in Psalm 105. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of, God, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, or Isaiah. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. This is where the Jews took their pride. This is what they were excited about. This is where they found part of their identity. They said, We are sons of Abraham. He was obedient and faithful. We must also be obedient and faithful. He's our father. He's whose we are. They're excited about that. And it was this descent, it was this privileged place that they viewed as inconsistent with slavery of any form, spiritual or physical they say to Jesus we're free we've always been free and it looks to us like denial right like the height of denial just the absolute height of denial they say we've never been enslaved and we're like we just like flip back a few chapters you'll see it's It's and there's real you know what I mean denial Here's the thing, when we see the ignorance and the denial here, when we hear their words to Jesus, when they say, hey, we don't need the freedom you offer, because we're already free, we should see in that the thoughts of our own hearts. We're all slaves. One way or another, we are all slaves, and none of us are free in the sense that we think. Our whole nation is like built on this idea of freedom, right, and independence, We have a holiday that celebrates it, right? Fourth of July, when we commemorate Will Smith fighting the aliens. I was homeschooled, so. I'm I'm just kidding. American independence is so fundamental to how we view ourselves as Americans. It's true for most of the Western world. It's about free choice. It's about what we might call unmitigated autonomy. The idea that I can forge my own path. I can choose to do what I want to do. There are no tyrants that can rule me. I'm an independent man, an independent human being. I get to choose what I do with my life. I have free choice. I can follow the passions of my own heart. America's built on that. The Western world is built on that. So many of us feel that at the most basic level. Free choice. It matters so much to us. Free choice. It matters so much to us. That's where we think freedom is. That's why marriage is declining, by the way. That's why people have stopped getting married. Because it is a loss of that kind of freedom. Who's married? It's good, right? But it's a loss of that kind of freedom. Because people think that's where freedom lies. They're not willing to get married and lose that type of freedom. That's why parenthood is declining. Because kids... (laughs) Or a loss of freedom. <laughs> and money and sleep and time. I love being a dad. I love being a dad. I'm just saying. It's a loss of a certain type of freedom. Here's the thing. We've become enslaved to the passions of our heart. We've become enslaved to the sin that's in our heart. We've become enslaved to our daily whims. We think freedom is found in the free choice we enjoy. We think, I get to choose what I want to do, so I am free. Slavery is everywhere. We're not free. We think that's freedom. We're not free. We're not free. give you a few examples. Money. Some of us wake up every morning and we immediately think about what's in our bank accounts. We think about what we're going to buy, how we're going to make more money, how we're going to position ourselves to get careers that make us more money. We think about how we're going to retire, the things we're going to buy before and after we retire. Every decision we make is motivated by the money we have or the money we want to have. If that's you, you are not free, you're a slave. For some of us, it's marriage and the desire for a spouse. We crave, we crave, we crave marriage, right? We crave a spouse, we want the American dream, we want family. And then every decision we make is motivated by the desire to have a family, to get married. That becomes our own tyrant. If that's you, you are not free. You're a slave. How about social status? We define ourselves by how we relate to people. Who we spend time with matters. Who we allow into our circle matters. What we do with the people that we spend time with matters. We go to Facebook, we write a status, and we delete it, we rewrite it, and then we edit it, and then we delete it, we rewrite it. We think, how are we going to come off as awesome on Facebook? (laughs) I'm being funny, right? But some of us wake up every day and we're motivated by the idea that we care about what people think and the status we have in our social circles, It controls us. It becomes a tyrant. If that's you, you are not free. You're a slave. We think that free choice is the freedom that matters, and it is not the freedom that matters. Because ultimately, we become enslaved to our own passions, to our own hearts. We come to a place where we have an internal tyrant. I want to show you what Spurgeon says about this. I think it's great. He who serves his own passions is the slave of the worst of despots. Talk to me not of dark dungeons beneath the sea level. Speak not to me of pits in which men have been immured and forgotten. Tell me not of heavy chains nor even of racks in the consuming fire. The slave of sin and Satan, sooner or later, knows greater horrors than these. His doom more terrible because eternal And is slavery more hopeless because it is one into which he willingly commits himself? Listen to that. Jesus is not talking about their external tyrant. He's not talking to us about external tyrants. He's talking about how we're enslaved to sin. How do we know if we're slaves? How do we know if we're slaves? Jesus tells us how we act. Look at 834 through 38. So they say, we're free, we're sons of Abraham, we're free, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, you know what sons do? They do what their fathers do. It doesn't sound like you're sons of Abraham. You're trying to kill me. You want to murder me. The same crowd that cried, Hosanna, cried, crucify him a week later. So you're trying to kill me. Sons do what their fathers do. Sons do what their fathers do. Abraham can't be their father. That's what Jesus is saying. Who is their father then? (laughs) He tells them a few verses later. Read in 42. Jesus said to them, "'If God were your father, you would love me, "'for I came from God, and I am here. "'I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. "'Why do you not understand what I say? "'It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. "'You are of your father the devil, "'and your will is to do your father's desires.'" He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying, there's something you need to be freed from. Jesus is saying, many of us are actually slaves. We are freed from from the power of sin. Jesus says the truth will set us free. Amen? Secondly, we are freed to fruitful sonship. We are freed to fruitful sonship. Read 831 with me. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus says abide. This word means to stay in. To remain, I think more properly, it means to obey, to hold reverence for. This is where we learn what it means to be a true disciple. This is where we understand that true discipleship and belief are completely and totally irreversibly connected. We've already heard about fickle faith in John. Not an abiding, reverent, or obedient faith. Not one that holds the word of God in its proper place. Not one that's actually founded on who Jesus is. But something that realized it was attracted to Jesus momentarily. We've seen it in John already. We've seen it in John already. And I want to assure you, this is actually not even real faith. In John, Jesus is out. He feeds the 5,000 out in the desert. Who remembers this? Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's this awesome miracle. It's in all four Gospels. They're amazed, they're excited about Jesus. They begin to follow him. Thousands are there. And a chapter later, he begins to speak to that same group, and he says to them, I am the bread of life. You must eat my blood, and, eat my flesh, and drink my blood and they're like nope and they leave in the thousands right people who were called disciples leave in the thousands they had intellectually believed they had assented to the facts of Jesus intellectually they said yes we believe what you say obviously we saw you do this miracle that belief didn't get into their hearts discipleship has to follow belief becoming a Christian is a lot like getting married who's married again? it's really easy right? Oh, it's, it's kind of hard? It's in the of somewhere. Who likes going to weddings? It's amazing how few hands go up when I say that. <laughs> Who likes going to I like going to weddings, right? You go to weddings and you watch a husband and wife commit to each other. They say, we love each other. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together. We're going to be committed to each other. We're going to work hard to care for each other through thick and thin, sickness and health, all that stuff. Anyone who's been married any amount of time knows this. Marriage is a decision you wake up every morning and you make. Every morning you wake up. Husbands, with me for a second. You wake up every morning and you decide, today I'm going to act like a husband to my wife. You get home from work and you're really, really tired and your wife's really tired and the kids are barbarians. (laughs) Who's been there? Who's been there? Yeah, thanks for the honesty. You get home and you realize it's your opportunity to help, that is when you are a true husband to your wife. Not your wedding day, that day. Husbands, when you're alone with your computers and no one's watching, that's when you're a true husband to your wife. Not your wedding day, that day. Christianity's like that. Christianity's like that. Discipleship will follow belief. The true faith leads to true discipleship, that abides in obedience to the word of God, that exemplifies allegiance to Jesus in every part of your life, that submits to his lordship and is utterly won over by the person of Jesus. That's what belief should lead to. That's what discipleship is. That's what Jesus is saying to these infant believers. He says, yeah, you intellectually get me. It's in your brains. It needs to be in your heart, and it needs to change you. That's what true belief does. Amen? Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this too. Look with me at Ephesians, a really famous passage. Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus and he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is talking to them about when they were dead in their sins, when they were slaves to sin, when sin had power over them before they knew jesus that's what he's saying is true about them you were dead you were dead and you were completely and utterly powerless then we can skip ahead to 289 and, and we get to see how it is on the other side after jesus had begun to work in their lives for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of work so that no one may boast who's heard that verse before almost everyone and if you're a good protestant that's when you shut your bible and you're like awesome <laughs> right we did it guys <laughs> we did it paul immediately continues in verse 10 and he talks about what happens when you have true belief for we are created for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them He said, you used to walk in sins and trespasses. Now you're saved, so what do you do now? You walk in the good works that God has already prepared ahead of time for you to do. He designed you to do these things. You can now do what you were made to do. You can be who you were made to be. That's what Paul is saying. You don't do good works to get saved. When you're saved, you are meant to do good works. You are meant to be disciples. You are meant to abide and remain in the word and hold reverence for Jesus in your heart let me give you an analogy. My uh, wife's family are boat people. Uh, let me start over. They're river people. They like water. Uh, they put boats in water and drive them around. <laughs> I don't like water, or, out, or outside, to be honest with you. <laughs> I like indoors. I don't know why people go places that there's no Wi-Fi. I'm not even sure what I did before Wi-Fi, to be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but uh, I was new, so I do boating stuff with them. They were like, hey, do you want to go wakeboarding? They'd be like, no, I'd like to read on the shore with the women, please. And they'd say, no, no, you've got to go wakeboarding with us. They are boat people. And here's what I would watch happen all the time. They would put this boat, it would just remain on this trailer for the whole year round until it was time to go to the river or the lake. They'd clip it on the back of this big truck, and this big, powerful truck would drive this boat hundreds of miles and it'd be strapped on this trailer, couldn't move. They'd get it uh, to the river, and, like, this boat can't move, Right? It's very heavy, it's very unwieldy. It's large, it's a bit fragile. If it falls off the trailer, it's done, right? So they reverse it down this ramp towards the water, and all the men get out and like grab the boat, and I'm there too, helping. (laughs) They grab the boat, and it's heavy, and you can't move it. It won't go anywhere, it's fragile. It's literally sat motionless on a trailer for like the last 11 months, And we slowly carry it down to the water. The truck's helping us bring it back. And once it hits the water, we let go, and it's free. It's agile. It can move around. It's mobile. It's doing what it's designed to do. It's found freedom in obedience to its design. I could take the boat, and I could try and push it down the street by myself. That wouldn't be freedom. It would be freedom of choice. But it wouldn't be freedom. Paul's saying this. You are now recreated to do good works. Go. Do what you were designed to do. That has to follow belief. That has to follow belief. I want to read you another Spurgeon quote. I like Spurgeon a lot. Just there's a poem about Spurgeon, I'll tell you. My friend said this to me this week. Uh, It says, There was once a man called Spurgeon who was not a fan of liturgy. His sermons were fine." I wish they were mine, and so do most of the clergy. <laughs> so here's, here's, another, here's another quote from Spurgeon. If thou believest in the Lord Jesus Christ, that same blood by which sin is pardoned enables man to overcome sin. They in heaven washed their robes and made them white in his blood, but they have another note in their song. They overcame through the blood of the Lamb. As Christians, we talk a lot about sin. We talk a lot about sin. Oh, I'm struggling with sin. We're struggling this week. You need to help me. Please, I'm struggling with sin. Let's do accountability. I'm struggling with sin. Sin is really hard. Fight it. Make war on your sin. Why? Why? Because Jesus has already gone ahead of you and defeated it. Its strength is gone. It's a cleanup operation. Fight sin. Fight it. You can now. You couldn't before. Sin was your master. Jesus beats sin. You can fight it now. Fight it in your hearts first. Fight it in your hearts first. Look for all the dark places in your heart where the side tyrant is still sort of laying around and deal with it. Not because you're strong, not because you're powerful, but because the one who is strong and who is powerful already went ahead of you. Fight it in your community. Hold each other up in righteousness. Encourage each other. Rebuke each other. Care about how we as a community are righteous. And then do this. Fight the same sorts of evil institutions today that exist that would have killed Jesus 2,000 years ago. All the way up. Fight sin. Not because you're strong, but the strong one went ahead of you. Amen? Amen. Lastly, we are freed by the true son. This is the most important one. We are freed by the true Son. We are freed from the power of sin. We are freed to fruitful sonship. We are freed by the true Son. When we read the Gospel of John, we read a narrative about how Jesus is obedient to the Father. Remember, sons do what their fathers do. Sons do what their fathers do. We read about Jesus who is obedient to his Father, and he acts like a true son. And John opens with talk of sonship. It begins by talking about sons and daughters. Listen to this. John 1, nine the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. And here's the good part, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Later, eight chapters later, Jesus is at the temple. He's preaching. He sees this new group of believers who have just assented to the fact that what he is saying is true, and he talks to them again about sonship, whose they can be. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free You will be free indeed. Jesus is saying slaves don't have rights. They don't have a secure future. They don't have this future of inheritance. They can't be guaranteed the blessings of the house or the comfort of the house or the salvation that the house offers. They don't actually belong to the house. They're slaves. But then Jesus says, sons, however, can count on the security the house offers. They can count on a secure future. They can count on the inheritance the house offers. They can count on the blessing, the rest, the comfort that the house offers. Jesus says, and you can become sons and daughters. You don't have to be slaves. How does this happen? Read Mark 10.45 with me for a second. Jesus says this about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says we can become sons and daughters. How does it happen? It happens because he trades places with us. The son becomes a slave, so the slaves can become sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' bondage on the cross, we are made free. That's the freedom Jesus is talking about. In Jesus' supreme act of obedient servanthood, we are given the status of sons and daughters. The son becomes a slave, so the slaves can become sons and daughters of God and have the blessings of the house and have a secure future, have the inheritance. Amen? Amen? One last question. Remember, sons do what their fathers do. Sons and daughters do what their fathers do. Who is your father really? You know who your father is by how you act. Who is your father really? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the innumerable blessings that you've offered us in your son. We thank you for your word. Um, I just want everyone to keep their heads bowed for a second. And I want to offer people... an.